The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody, to Squawk Box. Steve and I are live from the World Economic Forum Growth Summit in Geneva. And Karen, of course, is in the studio in London in our European headquarters. And these are your headlines this morning. JP Morgan buys the remains of First Republic after regulators take control of the regional lender in the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history and the biggest since 2008. Meanwhile, the JP Morgan CEO, though, Jamie Dimon, says his bank stepped up to the government's call whilst playing down the risk of further contagion and urging the market to take a deep breath. There are only so many banks offside this way, and I think this is, there, you know, there may be another smaller one, but this pretty much resolves them all. But this part of the crisis is over. HSBC's pre-tax profit more than triples thanks to a higher rates environment with the lender announcing its first quarterly dividend since 2019, as it looks to fend off pressure from its biggest shareholder, Ping An. Meanwhile, protesters clash with police across France in May Day protests, where almost 800,000 people take to the streets amid continued anger over President Macron's pension reforms. And back here in Geneva, 69 million new jobs will be created by 2027, but 83 million could be eliminated, according to the World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs report, which warns the economic outlook remains clouded. There is a complete split down the middle in terms of those that are predicting recession, 45% and the 45% that are predicting no recession. So we really are in the midst of this deeply uncertain moment. developments over the weekend in the banks and the big question is whether this again stabilizes the system or whether it provokes fresh concerns. Now JP Morgan will take over First Republic after the regional lender became the third American bank to fail in two months and the second biggest US banking failure ever. JP Morgan has agreed to take on all First Republic deposits. We're talking about a level that totals more than $92 billion, along with a further $173 billion in loans and $30 billion in securities. This follows a weekend of negotiations with regulators. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation will absorb most of the loan losses taken on by JP Morgan, while also providing it with an additional $50 billion credit lifeline. Now, JP Morgan will pay just over $10.5 billion for First Republic and expects to see an annual profit of half a billion dollars per year from the deal. First Republic will close down with shareholders wiped out, Jeff. Well, Wall Street seemed to welcome the deal. JP Morgan shares closing more than 2% higher. The CEO, Jamie Dimon, says the acquisition means the banking crisis is largely over. No crystal ball is perfect, but yes, I think the banking system is very stable. You guys have reported already on tons of regional banks who actually had good results, very modest outflow. A lot of the deposit outflow is because of quantitative tightening. It wasn't because these people are having runs. There are only so many banks that are offside this way, and 
I think this is, there, there may be another smaller one, but this pretty much resolves them all. But this part of the crisis is over. That does not, you know, down the road, there are, you know, rates going way up, real estate, recession, that's a whole different issue. But, but uh, for now, everyone should just take a deep breath. Well, we conducted a very interesting and, uh, and, and wide-ranging interview yesterday with the World Economic Forum Managing Director, that is Sadia Zahidi. Uh, and we asked her about the First Republic deal and whether it would put broader concerns about the banking system to rest. The chief economists um, are, do not currently see what has currently happened so far um, to, to reflect any systemic instability. But they are expecting that there will be weakness revealed in other banks and other parts of the financial system because of continued interest rate changes. Well, America's banking regulator, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC, is uh, now thinking about an overhaul to its deposit insurance program, which currently covers up to $250,000. This in the wake of recent bank collapses, which has seen it step in to cover all deposits. Among the options cited is a targeted coverage approach now for business accounts above the current cap which it says would offer the best guarantee for financial stability. Our colleagues stateside spoke to several key figures in the financial sector following J.P. Morgan's takeover of First Republic, and here's what they had to say. This was an unusual situation in the sense that all the incentives were aligned among the three big actors, the banks, the FDIC, and the Fed. You had an unusual alignment, and yet what comes out has all sorts of unintended consequences and collateral damage. It's not, you know, one thing drove all of this. It was an intersection of low interest rates, uh, management uh, seeking uh, yield that perhaps they shouldn't have or in a way that was overly aggressive, many institutions having assets on their balance sheets priced for, you know, a lower interest rate environment. I think there is some risk um, that we have to continue to watch the situation closely. This is not the end. Okay. Like, I don't think we're going to get three and done. Crises don't sort of end this easily. There will be other issues out there in the banking world. We've seen an interest rate move. It's unprecedented. We've gone from 0% to 5%. The Fed will most likely move again this week. Right. You know, the, the unintended consequences of that on banks and balance sheets is, is fairly substantial. Lovely day. Uh, it is a very Beautiful nice day, day here in Geneva, actually. Uh, hopefully the audience can see a little bit of the lake and they can also take in some of the background weather as yeah, well, because yeah. this is superb. But it certainly beats how it's been in the UK over recent weeks, yeah, where it's just been nice miserable. We've, we've so many false starts this and, spring. And yet the tempest behind us in financial markets continues unabated. Oh, well, I like what you did there. Do you see what I did the there? Tempest. Yeah, well, I mean, great play. Uh, which very I've seen good. a couple of times. But the, but the point being here is that it's all very well for JP Morgan and the FDIC to say this draws a line uh, under the banking crisis. Well, mm. I don't think it does. Now, it may draw a line yep. under this phase of the banking crisis. But now the FDIC has had to take under its stewardship three banks. We've had four fa bank failures in the United States. We've had a massive bank failure, which you may or may not covered many times, yes. not so far from here um, as well. So there are still tensions in the banking Sector. And I'm sorry to say there are still concerns that inflation is creating higher interest rate needs as well, that there will not be a pivot like many people think later this year, which in itself is creating tensions.
relations amongst a lot of borrowers globally, whether it be sovereigns, whether it be corporations, whether it be the private sector held commercial real estate, which we've begun to speak about an awful lot. In fact, no, you and I have been speaking about it with Karen a long time, uh, but others are beginning to speak about it now as well. So I think a lot of the tensions that created problems for these banks, you know, the five banks we've mentioned, one in Europe, four in the United States, I believe they remain. So the 08 crisis was meant to be the the last of the major banking crises, wasn't it? I mean, let, let's face it, the um, last 150 years or whatever has witnessed several crises in the financial architecture. And I think 08 was seen as it can never happen again. We're going to put in place a resolution program for the wind-up of banks that we understand, that works, and hopefully we'll never have to use because we've learnt the lesson from 2008. Roll forward, here we are again talking about banking crises. And again, the authorities are making up the rules as they go along. And the immediate consequences of this are, of course, that there is a rush to stabilise the system by basically doing whatever is needed to stabilise the system. But some of the precedents create dangerous risks going forward. And moral hazards. Is the FDIC actually going to step in and make every depositor whole? Can the government actually afford to do that? And the answer is clearly no, so there has to be another resolution here. And as, as you point out, with interest rates rising, that just exacerbates the current challenge within the bank's books with regard to any uh, bonds they own, uh, with regard to any um, commercial real estate exposure they have. Charlie Munger in the FT just a day or so ago yes. saying he doesn't believe the crisis is over. The banking sector still looks dangerous as far as he's concerned. Mm. And what have we done here? We've effectively just now concentrated the risk even further exactly. because JP Morgan, which already had 10% of US deposits, will now hold even more, Karen. So where is the space for these competing uh, fintech banks, these organizations that were meant to come in and help, in a sense, reduce the risk across the financial system. A couple of points here, if I can just jump in. I think one of the issues was that this was a bank that was a sitting duck. I mean, everybody knew that First Republic was reporting the other week. They wanted to see just what the bleed out and deposits looked like. And it was a race against time behind the scenes by a lot of bankers to ensure that the numbers looked adequate. And as a result, they just didn't. Uh, when the numbers crossed, uh, we, what we saw, the uh, wash up, the First Republic had lost more than half of its deposits in just a matter of days, talking around $100 billion. So uh, I think bankers just couldn't work quickly enough against the tide of uh, the flight of deposits. What comes next? I mean, the big question is whether this brings some form of stability. If you've had one bank that was a sitting duck and everybody was watching closely and now there's been some form of resolution, well, does it provide some stability? And the reality is that this was the, one of the best of the best when we talk about some of the smaller banks. If it can't survive, then it naturally puts questions out there. What happens with some of the, these other small and regional lenders? If you think about this as a bank that had a valuation that was better than JP Morgan and Bank of America at one point, both of those banks were trying to copy its model, trying to steal some of the high-end business, were simply just not able to mimic what it was doing. So I think there will be natural questions about the health of the rest of the sector and this two-tiered banking system that has been created. Just in terms of uh, testing the narrative as well, this was a bank that said it worked in all environments. 
effectively it took on as many deposits, checking accounts that it could, and then uh, effectively used that money to, to churn out loans. And if you look at the spread that it had, it was on average charging just over 3% in interest in uh, 2021. Paying out to depositors, though, just 0.12% on average. So the spread, what, almost 300 basis points here. And that is something that has changed in this type of environment. So I think question marks from here again, whether this is a model that works in all types of environments, which was the pledge from the company several months ago, Steve. So, so, Sharon, I think you've said two very interesting, well, many interesting things, as ever, of course. It's lovely to see you, by the way, in the gloomy London studio uh, from beautiful Lake Le Mans here. Uh, but, but, but you said two things, and, and they really piqued my interest. One, you said this was a sitting duck and everyone knew it. Well, it wasn't a sitting duck and everyone didn't know it until it was, if you see what I mean. But you also raised in the same comment, and I think you tantalisingly brought this forward for our viewers as well, that there is a two-tier banking system. And, and that's the point. No one knew it was a sitting duck because the regulation surrounding it, because it was wasn't an SIB, a systemically important bank, compared with the, 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 the top tier, um, meant that we didn't get the insight that we should. And this has been a bugbear of mine since way before 2008, 2007, 2006, and which something I remember us discussing mm. back in the first decade of this century. And the fact is that the, the, the disclosure regime for all financial institutions is still not what it should be. Why is it in the 21st century when we can have immediate reporting of size of risk positions, whether they be trading positions, whether they be mortgage exposure, whether they be CRE exposure, whether they be corporate loan exposure, whether they be exposure to doom loops with government sovereign bonds? Why is it in the age of AI, uh, where we have unbelievable amount of data available, do regulators and internal risk managers and the managers of the banks, who probably all have views like we have behind us in their offices as well, why do we not have better information on what is going on at these financial institutions. Karen, you're right, eventually it became a sitting duck, but it wasn't until it was, if you see what I mean. And that means to me that there could be an awful lot of other banks out there that could find themselves in the same situation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just to go 3D on the growth story as well, because we're here talking about yes, the we WEF growth outlook effectively. But it seems to me that something has changed from 08 to where we are now. And that's the fact that the flight of deposits can be so rapid. So is the structural change for the industry going to have to be that banks maintain higher capital levels because the prospect of higher capital flight at any time Are you sure about is this? very alive and so that is the that is what has changed it seems to me the speed with which those deposits fled and so that raises serious concerns about how quickly a bank can go from looking whole and looking liquid mm. to suddenly not looking liquid anymore and then the authorities have to step in here so Back in 08, we got very heavily into the weeds about what constituted a liquidity crisis and when did it become a solvency crisis. Mm. Well, very quickly, we are learning now from the experience of Credit Suisse, from the experience of SVB, from the experience of First Republic and others, that a liquidity crisis can transform itself into a solvency crisis almost faster than the authorities are able to react okay. at the moment. So I think it raises a couple of issues here for the regulators and for the authorities. Do you try to slow the pace at which those deposits are allowed to leave? Are you using which would that be word? Terrifying. Are you using that word? Gating? Right. Or do you ultimately just tell the banks that they've got to 
hold higher levels of capital well, they won't like that. in case there should be significant deposit flight, in which case they are going to reduce the amount they can lend into the real economy. So it will have consequences as we wash, watch the wash up. Oh, multipliers, gating, all kinds of... The, 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 yeah. And the only reason I was going to jump in on you yeah, there, because I, I feel like I'm sitting next to an evangelist, a convert, oh. because you have been rightly asking a lot of questions about, well, is it that different now? Yeah. Is it that different 15 years on? Is it that much quicker? Because I remember the bank runs of 2008 to 2009, 2010, and they yeah. seemed pretty swift at the time. They were and swift. you've been asking the question, and, and I think you've come to a conclusion then, that it is. I, I think social media... Um, oh, that's another I aspect. Th I think social media accelerates the departure. I mean, in the old days, you know, we all know the stories about, you know, there was a queue gathering outside a bank in Hong Kong, and they were there for a reason other than taking money out, but quickly people joined the queue Is and suddenly... True? Is it true? Uh, I don't know, but it's a great story. Mm -hmm. But it, it does, I think it just does explain to you the idea of how bank runs can start for the most illogical of reasons. Yeah. And now with tools like social media, where people can spread disinformation rapidly, yep. then I think you do have an issue. So, we have a lot going on today, um, both here and in London, so let's go through it a little bit. Coming up throughout the day, we will be speaking uh, to more guests from, as Jeff mentioned, the World Economic Forum Growth Summit, including the Randstad CEO, uh, Zander van Nordend. Uh, we're going to speak to the International Labour Organization Director General, that is Gilbert Hungbo, and Julia Kluckner, who is a Member of Parliament in the Bundestag as well. Jeff. Uh, so let's also talk a little bit about the debt ceiling story. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned the U.S. could fail to pay its debt obligations as soon as June the 1st if Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling before then. In a letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Yellen said the Treasury has moved up its estimated date due to lower than expected tax receipts. Now, uh, President Biden um, has invited congressional leaders to meet next week as Republicans continue to resist raising the debt limit without spending cuts. Karen. And Jeff, let's just take a look back at the U.S. market action as it wrapped up the trade last week. You could see uh, what we had uh, about a tenth of a percent in the uh, red is what we've got. Uh, and also the other major markets are managing to put on a little bit of red as well across the board. Uh, this wrap up as a lot of the other markets have been shut. Don't forget, we've been having uh, the Labor Day holidays on this side of the world across on those U.S. markets. Uh, regional banks very much in focus as we saw the wash up from First Republic. And you can see this is how it played out. Uh, the likes of Zion down 3.7%. That was the most contained out of the major boards. You can see uh, Pacific West down 10.6%, uh, fairly steep falls too in the PNC and also in Citizens Financial, 6.8% down. And let me take you to what we've seen as we take a look at the Treasury's board. Uh, the step up in yields was what transpired over the course of last week and you can see we're perched above the 4% level at the short end as a result as we uh, move throughout the early part of this week. 4.15%, 3.56 on the 10-year. But what a week it's been already. The first central bank to kick off their meeting was the RBA in Australia. And if we switch over the boards, you can see the ramifications. We had a 25 basis point rate increase from the Australians, from the Reserve Bank of Australia. A string of other meetings that will impact bond markets as well over the course of this week. The Fed begins its two-day meeting tomorrow. We've got the ECB and the Bank of Japan this week. But uh, the Australian uh, Central Bank already moving with its rate increase, despite uh, many thinking that it would stay pat at this stage, but also talking about the potential for more hikes. So just what does that signal when it comes to the action from central banks? Australia 
Australia. You can see the market is down more than 1% of reaction. We've got green on the rest of the boards, a modest upside on the Straits Times, on the Japanese stock market, and over in Hong Kong, up a third of a percent. The opening calls. Let's take a look at the early picture. The uh, markets into the weekend were slightly firmer. We're up about half of a percent, and that was in lockstep across the board. Some of these markets stronger than others. German and UK stocks actually were leading into the weekend before the long weekend, and you can see as a result, we're now looking somewhat mixed on the boards. A bit of everything, really. Slight uptick expected on the UK market, patchy across the board, as you can see on these major market signals. Coming up on the show, HSBC's quarterly profit surges as Europe's largest lender gears up for a battle with big-name shareholders at its AGM this week. And for more on the fallout from First Republic and what to expect from the Fed this week, be sure to check out the Scorebox podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. We're still watching earnings closely and HSBC has posted a pre-tax profit of $12.9 billion for the first quarter, a more than 200% increase on last year and above estimates. Revenue rose 64% on the year, fueled by rising net interest income. The bank also announced its first quarterly dividend since 2019 at $0.10 cents per share, as well as a buyback of up to $2 billion as it prepares for a potential clash with some shareholders, including Ping An, over proposals set for votes at its AGM on Friday. Our colleague Emily filed this report. HSBC Q1 pre-tax profit triples up in more than 200% to $12.9 billion. And that's a big beat for the bank on revenues of $20.2 billion, up 64% year over year. Group Chief Executive Noel Quinn says the strong first quarter performance provides further evidence that their strategy is working. Profits were spread across the major geographies and all three global businesses performed well. Return on tangible equity was 19.3%. The bank announced its first quarterly dividend since 2019 of 10 U.S. cents per share, as well as a share buyback of $2 billion. HSBC says it expects to have substantial future distribution capacity for dividends and share buybacks. Shareholders will now be looking to the bank's AGM on Friday in what is expected to be a major showdown with shareholders who want to see a breakup of the bank. HSBC's biggest shareholder, Ping-On Asset Management, first called for an Asian spin-off last year, and then retail shareholder Ken Loy managed to successfully put forward a vote for two special resolutions on restructuring and raising dividends to pre-COVID levels. That is not less than 51 U.S. cents per share per annum. HSBC, for its part, has recommended shareholders to vote against both proposals. Meantime, Ping-On is expected to vote in favor. HSBC's AGM is set to take place in Birmingham on Friday morning local time. I'm Emily Tan in Hong Kong. Back to you. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.